You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello, everyone. You're listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast, coming to you from the beautiful Niagara region of Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week I accompany you on a journey back in time 50 years to bring you all the hockey and sports news of that period. This week, we're looking at the week of May 25th to May 31st, 1970. Our podcast each week is made possible with the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive, and their support has been crucial to our research of this time period. They enable us to access all the newspapers with all the news of hockey land in the 1970s. We're also sponsored by the Breakwell Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario. Even during this pandemic, the Breakwell is still producing some great craft beers, and they're open for takeout of some of the finest pub food on the planet. I'd love to meet our listeners someday when things get back to normal at the Breakwell in Port Coburn. In last week's show, some of the stories we discussed were well, more news on the condition of injured Pittsburgh Penguins star Michelle Briere, who continued to lie unconscious in a Montreal hospital. We talked about the fate of the troubled Oakland Seals franchise and how it was becoming even more convoluted. And we learned that another NHL star ended up in hospital as a result of an off-ice incident, that being the great goaltender Terry Sawchuk at this point in his career with the New York Rangers. This time around, there's a lot of off-season news, and here's some of the stories we'll bring you. We'll talk more about Terry Sawchuk's condition and how he came to be in hospital. We'll uh, look at the ongoing legal battle to determine once and for all the ownership of the Oakland Seals. And we learned that the arena renovations to Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo suddenly came to a halt. And we wonder if this could endanger the new Sabres franchise. And we have all the news and rumors as the NHL teams prepare for the summer meetings and the upcoming expansion draft. Like we said, there's a ton of news this week. A lot of interesting things were going on, both of the hockey variety that we like to hear about and some of this bad stuff that we dread hearing about, but we have to report on. Let's start off with the off-season activities of the various teams as they prepare for the Buffalo-Vancouver expansion draft. The week began with some strange news out of the city of Buffalo. As everyone knows, in order to have the National Hockey League expansion team approved, the Board of Governors set stipulations that Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo, with a seating capacity of between nine and 10,000, had to be renovated to bring it up to the NHL standard 15,000 seats. Well, as it turned out, the odd, as it's affectionately dubbed by Buffalonians, the renovations had been put on hold for at least a year. Buffalo City Works Commissioner announced that the renovations will be completed, but not until October 1971, a year after the Sabres are scheduled to join the NHL. 
The news report that made this announcement, which came from the Associated Press as well as local newspapers in Buffalo, gave no reason for the delay at the start. It was known that a local Buffalo resident had said he was going to court to stop the renovations to the yard, citing spending a public money to enhance private endeavor, and he felt that was not legal. That, however, was not the cause for the delay in the Buffalo renovations. Later in the week, intrepid hockey reporter Charlie Barton of the Buffalo Courier Express, one of the best out there, by the way, he reported that little-known Erie County legislation required that the largest part of the renovations could not begin until all of the required $8.7 million budgeted for the project was available. Those in charge of the project, and even some of the politicians, failed to realize that the Buffalo Common Council had approved the money, but with such approval comes a 30-day waiting period. That waiting period is now making it impossible to have the project completed in time for the 1970-71 NHL season. What would happen is you'd start the season with a half-completed building, which may not even be able to support the fans that would be coming in to watch NHL games, would certainly take away from the fan experience. Some minor alterations to the auditorium's seating configuration will allow for a seating capacity of just over 10,000 for the upcoming season. Other changes that will be completed by October, as they've already been budgeted for, include new lighting and boards for the rink, as well as enhancements to the team dressing rooms, a new score clock, and improvements to the player and penalty benches right down on the ice surface. The NHL has been notified of the change in schedule, and really, they have nothing they can do about it. They have to agree They don't have anywhere else to put a franchise this fall with scheduling and other commitments already in place. The Sabres will begin their play in October in a slightly small Memorial Auditorium. I was an original in a group, I should say, with uh, original uh, season ticket holders for the Sabres. And I have to admit that going to AHL games there and the NHL games, it was a very uh, exciting, intimate atmosphere, and we really enjoyed games in the old odd. I even got to play a few games in the odd, although it was an empty building. It was an experience to play in that rink as well. The National Hockey League's other new expansion team, the Vancouver Canucks, also made some news this week. The Canucks are now suing the Western Hockey League, where the team has played for the past few years, and all of its member teams for allegedly willfully conspiring to unlawfully interfere with the Vancouver club's economic interests. The Canucks are seeking unspecified amount of damages for alleged intimidation, breach of bylaw rules and regulations of the Western Hockey League and a declaration that one article of the WHL bylaws constitutes an unreasonable and unnecessary restraint of the plaintiff in its economic pursuits and business activities and is void by reasons of being a restraint of trade. This, of course, arises from the Western Hockey League's outrageous demand of $1.2 million for the NHL's incursion on what the WHL feels is its sovereign territory, meaning, of course, the city of Vancouver. The Canucks have offered a cash settlement of about $500,000, and they offered to continue the Canucks franchise in either of the Alberta cities of Calgary or Edmonton. The Western Hockey League is in no way in favor of putting farm teams in either of those two Alberta cities. They cite travel problems for all the majority of the teams that are on the U.S. West Coast. They didn't say anything about travel problems 
when they put the team in Denver, though, did they? Still with the Canucks, general manager Bud Poyle says he wants to acquire Toronto center Mike Walton, who's been a thorn in the side to Maple Leafs management, and he's making a very strong bid to the Maple Leafs to acquire his services. Poyle doesn't mention what possible assets the expansion team he manages could offer to the Maple Leafs for shaky, and he doesn't seem too worried about NHL tampering rules. Well, if you remember about a year ago, Maple Leafs general manager Jim Gregory expressed the same sentiments about a defenseman who played for the Los Angeles Kings named Bill White. The National Hockey League and the Kings took a dim view of Jim's uh, covetous attitude regarding White last fall, and Jim was personally fined $1,000 by the league, and he learned a lesson about choosing his words more carefully. Let's see if the Maple Leafs decide to exercise uh, their right to go to NHL President Clarence Campbell and complain about Bud Poyle. That remains to be seen. Some news about the great Gordie Howe. After being delayed for a day, Gordie had successful surgery on his arthritic left wrist to correct a condition that had been causing the veteran superstar quite a bit of discomfort during games. It was a relatively short procedure, I understand, way less than an hour, and Gordie should be ready for action with the Red Wings by opening night this October. You'll remember last week we talked about the National Hockey League's trading deadline which came about on uh, May 22nd and it turned out that uh, a couple of deals were announced after the deadline that general managers didn't know about. Well here's one trade that took place that wasn't announced till the following Tuesday and that was the Kings sending veteran defenseman Bob Wall who served as their captain for a time to the St. Louis Blues and in exchange they received defenseman Ray Fortan. Uh, we haven't been able to find out any reason why this deal was not announced right at the deadline but apparently both uh, teams were quite anxious to acquire their players and both professed happiness, especially the Blues, at getting a solid veteran like Bob Wall. Bob is a graduate of the Hamilton Junior Red Wings program, came up to the Detroit Red Wings, and was an original king selected in the 1967 expansion draft. Bob is a versatile guy. He spent a lot of time at left wing in the NHL, although most of his games have been played on the blue line. Another deal that took place but wasn't reported right away, although I think it was just because it was minor in nature, had the Flyers picking up veteran Hershey Bears of the American Hockey League, defenseman Barry Ashby. Uh, they sent to Hershey prospect Larry McKillop, and it is believed that the Flyers will retain the right of repurchase for McKillop. Flyers general manager Keith Allen said that the deal to bring in Ashby and also the previous trade where they acquired defenseman Brent Hughes from the Kings, these deals were made to give Philadelphia more depth on the blue line. And Keith says the reason he wants a few extra rear guards hanging around is because he may be forced to trade someone like Joe Watson, probably the Flyers' best defenseman, for scoring help. Uh, Boston, Toronto, and Montreal have all expressed interest in acquiring Watson, and the Flyers desperately need someone who can put the puck in the net. Now, Watson, as you may remember, came to the Flyers from the Bruins in the expansion draft. He's still good friends with Bruins defenseman Bobby Orr, who was best man at his wedding last summer. Still with the Philadelphia Flyers, and this is a, a bit of a strange story that I don't think a lot of people would have heard about 50 years ago. Uh, it appears that for a short time this week, the United States Internal Revenue Service was considered a part owner of the Flyers franchise. Now, what apparently happened was that during earlier in the week, the, the IRS filed a lien against the Flyers 
over the owing of back taxes that hadn't been paid. This lien, when it's filed, basically gives the IRS a partial ownership stake in the team to the amount that was owed in taxes. As it turned out, the Flyers did owe $66,000 in back taxes, and apparently they had paid $12,000 of that total owning, but there was a glitch in the paperwork, and no one knew it. Now, the IRS made a bit of an error, because they can't file a lien of this type against a private corporation or in fact anybody else, I guess, without providing 30 days notice. Now, as soon as word that the lien was in the process of being uh, initiated, the Flyers ponied up the remaining uh, $54,000 and paid off their outstanding debt. The Flyers were in no danger of losing the team, but it's just one of those crazy things that happens in business that really could have turned out to be quite a scandal. Here's a little more that we found out about that trade at the deadline last week that sent young center Jude Druin, the American Hockey League's uh, number one center and rookie of the year. He was sent to the North Stars from the Canadians organization. The return that Minnesota is supposed to get was a player to be named later. And, and now there's all kinds of stories going around as just how this is going to be accomplished. Minnesota papers both were reporting that Jean-Paul Parise will be the player going to Montreal as the guy to be named later. North Stars President Walter Bush refused to confirm those rumors and suggested that the Canadians will be given a list of Minnesota players from whom they could choose to replace Druin in their organization. A Montreal official who went unnamed went a little further when they were asked about the possibility of Parise, Claude LaRose, or Danny Grant coming to Montreal for Druin, and he flat out said, the list does not include any of those players. So we'll probably learn of this after the expansion draft when the North Stars have done their duty, as they usually do to the Canadians, and protected a player that Montreal doesn't want to lose in the draft, they don't have room to protect a lot more guys who are borderline players for the NHL. Here's a bit of wild speculation from Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, hockey writer Hans Tanner, and he's a guy who's pretty plugged into all things regarding the American Hockey League. Hans Tanner suggests that there is a distinct possibility that the NHL franchise in Pittsburgh, yes, the Penguins, could, within the next two years, move to the city of Baltimore, Maryland. That would result in the Baltimore Clippers taking up residence in the former AHL city of Pittsburgh. In effect, Hans Tanner's reporting a trade rumor between the NHL and the AHL, which would see the Penguins traded to Baltimore for the Clippers. Baltimore doesn't have an NHL quality arena, despite the fact that some people feel that the rink in that city, although it has a good seating capacity, it's not NHL standard. Uh, by way of amenities, by way of location, and also by way of sight lines, seat views. The whole customer experience won't be up to NHL standards. I can't see this one taking place. Hans had some other things to report as well. Uh, he said that in 1970-71, the American Hockey League will operate with eight teams, but that number could jump to as many as 13 or 14 within the next year or two. Cities that will apparently be added to the American Hockey League include Norfolk, Virginia, who will be affiliated with Detroit. New Haven, Connecticut is slated to be a Minnesota farm team. The Long Island, New York team would be the number one farm team of 
the New York Rangers. The Boston Bruins are thinking of putting an AHL team in Boston as their number one farm team. And wouldn't that be convenient? Uh, and Richmond, Virginia is slated to join the league as well. And it is said that the Buffalo Sabres will establish a farm team in that city. Hans also adds that the Quebec Aces could shift to a new city even as soon as this fall and that the Montreal Voyagers who had bad crowds at the Forum this year, uh, they may play a number of games this season in Halifax, Nova Scotia. The Rangers, by the way, have replaced their Buffalo American Hockey League affiliate with a working agreement all the way across the continent in the Western Hockey League with the Seattle Totems. The Harry Sinden story doesn't want to go away just yet. Rumors persist that Sinden could somehow join the Minnesota North Stars. Well, the North Stars themselves say that they plan to ask the Boston Bruins for permission to talk to their former coach about taking the same type of job with the Minnesota North Stars. Uh, Ren Blair has let it be known that Charlie Burns is going to return next season as a player and will not be the Minnesota coach. Uh, Blair has to make a decision on whether he's actually going to protect Charlie in the expansion draft or risk losing him to either Buffalo or Vancouver. And right now, uh, Blair is kind of split on what he wants to do with Burns. The North Stars previously announced that they'll be switching their main farm club to the American Hockey League Cleveland Barons this season. Now we learned they've purchased 10 players previously owned by the Barons and two of these players, goalie Gary Kurt and right winger Norm Bowden, are considered to have some NHL potential yet and they have been added to the Minnesota Reserve list as well. We have some news out of the Stanley Cup champion Boston Bruins that isn't related to Harry Sinden. The Bruins defenseman Don Ory thinks he's worth $50,000 and that's what he's asking for in his next contract for next season with the Boston club. Don says that they don't want to pay him that amount. Then, quote, they can trade me. Now, Don doesn't mention what'll happen if the Bruins refuse to pay him or... They refuse to trade him. Will he sit out the season? I can't see Don sitting out and throwing away a potential of $35,000, $40,000 not to play hockey. Ori's logic is that if Bobby Orr is going to be paid the rumored $200,000 a year that he says he's sinking, then he's easily about a quarter as good as Bobby Orr, meaning he's worth fifty grand. I really doubt that the Bruins and Milt Schmidt are going to see it quite that clearly. The Bruins have also awarded full Stanley Cup shares for four players who didn't spend the full season with the team. They are Ted Green, who missed the entire schedule because of that fractured skull, left winger Ron Murphy, who had to retire because of that terrible shoulder problem he had, uh, left winger Don Marcotte, who spent the biggest part of the season with the uh, Hershey Bears in the American League, and Wayne Carlton, who was acquired partway through the season in a trade with the Toronto Maple Leafs that sent Jimmy Harrison to Toronto. The club also awarded half shares to assistant trainer John Frosty Forrestal and assistant general manager Tom Johnson. Stay tuned, Johnson's name's going to come up in the news very shortly as well. And another player note, veteran left-winger Dean Prentice of the Pittsburgh Penguins has changed his mind. Dean had announced partway through the season that the rigors of travel and playing so many games on so many nights had taken its toll and he had planned to retire at the end of the season. Well, Dean has been offered a very nice contract by new general manager and present coach Red Kelly of the Penguins and Dean is signing up to play another season and Red Kelly says he couldn't be happier he knew that Dean Prentice had a lot left to give to the NHL and he's happy it's going to be with Pittsburgh 
And now here's a story that just doesn't seem to go away, doesn't seem to want to end. It's going to go on forever. Well, 50 years later, we know it's not going to go on forever, but it's going to go on again this year in 1970. And this is, of course, the ongoing saga of the Oakland Seals National Hockey League franchise. A trial got underway in in, uh, California this week to determine the ownership of the Seals, and the words were flying around at an astonishing rate. A lot of hyperbole, a lot of positioning, a lot of posturing uh, to try and influence a decision as to where or who is going to own the Seals, where they're going to play. Former team owner Barry Van Gergbig, you will remember him from 1967-68 when the Seals came into the league and he really botched that original uh, club. He was alleging that the people that the club was sold to, Transnational Communications of New York City, had not lived up to the purchase agreement and hadn't paid money owing to Van Gerbig's group. Van Gerbig was asking that the courts place the team in receivership so that he could sell it to one of two bidders, Charles O. Finley, the owner of baseball's Oakland Athletics, or Jerry Seltzer, who was the proprietor of the International Roller Derby League. Now here's a rundown on how things unfolded this week. The first day, nothing uh, of very much interest to the general public got done as pre-trial motions occupied the lawyers and the judge for most of the day. One witness did appear, and that was SEALs President William Creasy, a fellow who never met a microphone he didn't like. Creasy makes a lot of statements, many of which have turned out to be not quite accurate as uh, they did not withstand the test of time. Creasy only got on the stand for about 25 minutes on that first day, and during that time, he told the court that the seals' value was increasing because their ticket sales had gone up 37% over the previous season in the 1969-70 season. The next morning... Bill Creasy returned to the witness stand and under questioning, he said that he estimated the value of the Oakland National Hockey League franchise to be $6 million. He based his estimate on the fee that was charged the new National Hockey League teams coming in this year in Buffalo and Vancouver. Under further questioning, Creasy also admitted the team had less then $5,000 in accounts receivable accounts, about $12,000 in bank deposits, and they still had a whopping $440,000 in unpaid bills accrued during this past season with no source of income to tide the team over for the summer. In addition to this, it was learned that the Providence Reds hockey team of the American Hockey League had threatened the termination of their working agreement pending the payment of $36,000 in due debts, which the Reds say have been owing to them from the Seals since last October. This does not sound like a healthy National Hockey League franchise that would be worth $6 million, such as Buffalo and Vancouver paid. Don't forget, Buffalo and Vancouver were strongly vetted to ensure they had money available to survive the short and long haul. And here's another strange twist that uh, I didn't hear about back when this was going on, and I was trying to follow the story as closely as I could in 1970. I was kind of a closet Seals fan next to the Maple Leafs. Well, in another strange twist, the Knox brothers of Buffalo, New York, who are now the owners of the new Buffalo Sabres, they still have a 20% ownership stake in the Seals. They were allowed standing at the trial as well for some reason. Well, actually, we know the reason. The Knoxes want to block any move by the court to place the team in receivership or to sell the team because they have not yet 
been able to divest their interest in the seals. You may remember that a couple of years ago, before the Buffalo expansion franchise was announced, the Knoxes purchased a 20% share of the seals with the hopes that they would be able to eventually move the team to Buffalo. Well, the NHL made it abundantly clear that that was not going to happen. The Seals were not going to move, according to Clarence Campbell, who, of course, gets his marching orders from the Board of Governors. So the the, uh, Knoxes have maintained this 20% ownership. And then when the question of ownership arose and this lawsuit started, they were prevented from selling that 20%, even though the NHL um, made it quite clear they were not allowed to own that uh, part of the team while owning the Sabres. Now, the Knoxes feel that there is a rumored sale. In fact, there have been stories that it had already been negotiated that Barry Van Gerbig's group had already made a deal with Charles Old Finley to sell the team to him, and that sale would net only $3.4 million, not the $6 million Bill Creasy says it's worth. That, of course, would seriously devalue the Knox's share in the team. They feel that such a sale price would be grossly undervalue, and Seymour and Nordy Knox want to ensure a fair return on their investment, and you can't blame them. They want to say that uh, they also wish that any sale that does occur with the team takes place in a manner that is fully consistent with the NHL Constitution. And you can't blame the Knoxes on this. They invested in a team hoping to move it. We're told by the NHL they weren't going to be able to move it. But yet they kept their money in the team to keep it afloat. In other words, they were good corporate citizens. They were rewarded by the NHL by being given the Buffalo Sabres franchise. But they shouldn't have to take a big hit just because of the mismanagement of the majority owners of the team. I don't know how that's going to be resolved for the Knoxes, but I hate to see good people like that come out on the short end of a deal like that. Well, the third day of the trial began with Bill Creasy still on the stand, but only to identify various documentary exhibits, and there wasn't a lot of news being made with any real testimony for this day. There was a lot of talk, no real action, until Judge Robert Schnocky tired of the haranguing by both sides and told them to save their theatrics for closing arguments. Friday's session revealed that Barry Van Gerbig, assuming he's going to win the action to reacquire the seals, had already, in fact, begun negotiating the sale of the team to Charles O'Finley, leaving Jerry Seltzer holding the bag, more or less. The week's trial activity came to an end with much speculation as to what Finley would pay Van Gerbig for the seals and has begun to look more and more like uh, transnational communications is really bleeding cash, at least in this hockey division, and they can't possibly has paid all that was required by the purchase agreement to Van Gerbig's group. In other words, they're going to lose this lawsuit. Now, does the NHL really want Charlie Finley in their brotherhood, in their lodge? A bigger question might be, can they stop him from barging through the door? We'll have to wait until at least next week on that one. Now I guess we have to get to some of the negative uh, news and boy the hockey world the National Hockey League in particular just seem to have too much of it going on these days. Uh, The trial of Ted Green for assault causing bodily harm was happening this week in Ottawa, Ontario. The star witness of course was uh, left winger Wayne Mackey of the St. Louis Blues who was in this case the alleged victim of an assault by Green before he cut down Green with a blow to the head by his hockey stick. Other witnesses uh, in the sort of preliminary evidence 
told the court that they had seen Mackie Speargreen before the altercation began. However, both of Mackie and Green didn't uh, remember Mackie Spearing Green at all. Neither of them could remember anything like that taking place. Uh, in fact, neither player according to their evidence, was able to remember very much at all about that stick-swinging duel that resulted in Green sustaining the brain injury through that fractured skull. The week-long trial eventually adjourned with the presiding judge reserving judgment that's going to take at least a month for him to announce his decision. The condition of Pittsburgh Penguins young star Michael Briere injured in that May 15th automobile accident in Quebec, was updated a few times over the course of this week. The reports were all pretty similar. It uh, doesn't matter where you read it from. Michelle was progressing well, but still in a coma, and he was not expected to come around at this point for at least another week or so. His condition in most press releases was generally listed as either stable or satisfactory. On Thursday, we learned that Briere had undergone yet another operation, and this one on the brain was to remove loose tissue pressing on the brain. On Friday, a spokesperson for Notre Dame Hospital in Montreal said that Briere was resting well after that latest surgery, but now, ominously, he said that the coma he was in was expected to last longer than the 10 to 15 days first anticipated. And in fact, the spokesperson said the coma could last much longer. And now I guess we get to what was the biggest story in the hockey world this week. The sad case of future Hall of Fame goalkeeper Terry Sachuk then with the New York Rangers. You'll remember last week when we left you, Terry was recovering in a Long Island, New York hospital after being injured in what was described as a wrestling match or horseplay with Ranger teammate and housemate Ron Stewart. It turned out Terry had been in the Long Island hospital, which is really uh, not much more than a, a glorified infirmary. He'd been in that hospital for more than three weeks, a fact that was unknown to the rest of the world, and in fact was unclear just how long the Rangers had actually known about the incident. Gerald Eskenazi of the New York Times had broken the story, and a couple of Toronto newspapers contacted Stewart at his home in Barrie, at which time Ron denied quite forcefully that he was even involved in any of the circumstances that resulted in Terry Sachuk being hospitalized. Stewart, in fact, said he was going to call the Rangers and find out just where this ugly rumor had started. A New York hockey writer, Shirley Fischler, undertook to invade Sawchuck's privacy by gaining access to his room, possibly under false pretenses, we don't really know that, to obtain what would be a big scoop. Knowing full well that Sawchuck had no use for the New York press, and in fact pretty well any people, any people that covered the National Hockey League for a living, she failed or refused to identify herself as a reporter and had a conversation with Terry that would never have taken place had she been truthful with the injured goaltender. The Toronto uh, Star carried that story under the byline of Shirley Walton, and we're not sure why that they didn't attribute it to Shirley Fischler. Sawchuk's condition ostensibly remained unchanged for the early part of the week. Uh, there were several reports, uh, even Stan Fischler reported, that Terry was allowed to have visitors during that time, but you didn't see any reporters getting access other than uh, Shirley. There were no new issues reported with Terry's condition, at least for the early part of the week. There was a little bit more tightened security, and that kept reporters at bay. However, on Thursday evening, a spokesperson for the Long Island Memorial Hospital reported that Terry had suffered a serious setback 
and had once again been placed in the hospital's intensive care unit. All the spokesperson would say was that Terry was once again in critical condition. On Friday morning, the Toronto Star was reporting that Sawchuk's condition was still critical and that doctors were making arrangements to have him moved to a larger New York City hospital for possible further surgery. Saturday morning, the uh, New York Daily News had a report that Terry had been moved to an unspecified New York hospital later identified as the New York Hospital in Manhattan, a much larger, much better equipped facility. Uh, the Daily News reported on Saturday that Terry was now listed in good condition and the Long Beach Hospital confirmed that Terry was in good condition when he left their premises. Meanwhile, in the Toronto Star, Stan Fischler was writing that there were conflicting reports about Sawchuk's condition and that he had been moved to New York Hospital in Manhattan. Fischler reported that 12 hours after the transfer, at which time he was listed in good condition, he was then reported to be in, quote, serious condition. Fischler quoted the doctor in charge of the case as saying that Terry was in that hospital for follow-up work on abdominal problems. Rangers general manager coach Emil Francis said he was at Terry's bedside for the past few days and was quoted as saying the team had made the decision to have Terry moved to the New York hospital because this is a top hospital, according to Emil, with the best facilities in the country. Francis also said that Terry's brother, Jerry, had been allowed to visit him over the past few days and that Terry was going to be hospitalized for an undetermined length of time. Emil was asked to comment on the reports of how Terry had been injured and came to be in the hospital, and Francis refused to elaborate on that subject. Stan Fischler had a little bit of speculation mixed in with his report in the Toronto Star, another one of those special to the Star reports. Uh, he quoted another report, did not source it, linked to the Long Island police that we said that Sawchuck had gotten into an argument with Stewart at E&J's pub in Long Beach. Uh, Gerald Eskenazi also had that report. He said he got it from the Long Island police. Uh, the manager of E&J's pub, however, was questioned, and he said that he had no knowledge of a brawl at his establishment involving either Terry Sawchuck or Ron Stewart. Fischler then quoted Catherine Dixon, whom he lists as spokesman for the New York Hospital, as expressing surprise when she was informed that Sawchuck's injuries were as a result of horseplay. She is quoted as saying, I've never heard of a gallbladder being removed because of horseplay. Sunday evening, the horrible news started to get around that Terry Sawchuck had passed away earlier that morning from cardiac arrest following extensive abdominal surgery on Saturday afternoon. Details were sketchy. Uh, Stan Fischler was reporting that an emergency surgery had been performed to remove a collection of blood from Sawchuck's liver. The aforementioned Catherine Dixon told Fischler that the emergency surgery was performed on Saturday afternoon and late Saturday evening, Terry had already regained consciousness. However, he seemed to slip away overnight and by 9.50 a.m. on Sunday morning, Sawchuck was pronounced dead from what was termed cardiac arrest. The New York City police became involved. Well, they already were involved. They planned on questioning Stewart personally, and they immediately ordered an autopsy, which was performed in short order. A more accurate cause of death was reported by Gerald Eskenazi of the New York Times. He says that the autopsy revealed that Terry Sawchuk had succumbed to a pulmonary embolism, a clot on one of the arterial branches as described 
in Jerry's story. Eskenazi said that he spoke to a detective in the Nassau County Homicide Bureau and that an investigation, full-scale investigation, would begin the following Monday. Well, we report more details on this incident uh, as the podcast goes along and we'll report them more or less as they emerged back then. We'll end this segment with a look at the career of possibly the best goaltender ever to lace up skates in the National Hockey League and that was Terry Sawchuk. Terry was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, December 28, 1929. He played junior in the Windsor Spitfires organization, already property of the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, He turned pro in the 1947-48 season with Omaha, and he was named the outstanding rookie in the United States Hockey League. The following season, he went to Indianapolis and was the outstanding rookie in the American Hockey League. In 50-51, Terry came to the Detroit Red Wings and he was, again, the outstanding rookie, this time in the NHL and an all-star goaltender. Detroit's all-star goalie in 51-52, he amassed 12 shutouts. He won the Vezina Trophy and recorded four shutouts in the playoffs as Detroit won the Stanley Cup that year in eight straight games, four by shutouts. In 52-53, he once again was the all-star goalie of the NHL and won the Vezina Trophy and capped that off in 1954, winning the Stanley Cup and he duplicated that feat in 1955, winning the Stanley Cup, first place for the seventh straight year, and he was also awarded the Vezina Trophy. In June of 1955, Terry was traded to the Boston Bruins with Marcel Bonin, Lorne Davis, and Vic Stasiak for goalie Joe Boisvert, forward Real Chevrofis, Norm Corcoran, defenseman Warren Godfrey, and Ed Sanford. But uh, two years later, Terry found himself back in Detroit. He was traded to the Red Wings for a promising young left winger by the name of Johnny Busick. He stayed with the Red Wings for seven years, and then in June 1964, the Red Wings left Terry unprotected, and the Maple Leafs scooped him up in the interleague draft. In that 64-65 season, Terry partnered up with an ideal goaltending tandem with Johnny Bauer, and the pair shared the Vezina Trophy. Terry got his 100th NHL shutout playing for Toronto in March 4th, 1967. And by the way, that 100 total did not include another 12 in the playoffs. In 1966-67, he played in 10 playoff games as the Leafs and Terry won their final Stanley Cup. In June of 67, Terry was drafted as the first player taken in the NHL expansion draft by the Los Angeles Kings. In that year, June of 67, he was also awarded the J.P. Bickle Memorial Trophy as the outstanding Maple Leaf in the 1966-67 season. The Kings traded Terry back to Detroit in October of 1968 for a young fellow by the name of Jimmy Peters, And in June of 1969, just a year before all this is taking place, the Red Wings traded Terry to the New York Rangers for Larry Jeffrey. Accompanying Terry to New York was a young winger by the name of Sandy Snow. In his final season, Terry Sawchuk played in eight games allowing 20 goals. He recorded his 103rd and final NHL shutout. He made one playoff appearance, at least he played one full game, losing to Boston by a score of 5-3. to Terry Sawchuk, possibly the greatest goalkeeper in NHL history. (music) 
So, boys and girls, what have we learned from this week's show? Well, one, we learned that determining just who owns or is going to own the Oakland Seals is not going to be an easy process, and there's a poor judge in California who's going to have to make that uh, determination. We learned, quite surprisingly, that the present owners of the Buffalo Sabres still have a 20% ownership stake in the Oakland Seals, and somehow they're going to have to resolve that situation as well. The courts are holding that up. And we learned that the arena renovations in Buffalo have hit a snag and they're not going to be completed until October of 1971. And that's certainly not a really great way to get your franchise started off on the right foot in Buffalo. Next week, we have some more uh, news on the Oakland Seals court action and we may be able to find out just who's going to take over that team. We'll learn that the Boston Bruins will get their man to replace the departed Harry Sinden as coach of the club. And more details will emerge in the death of Terry Sawchuk, as well as some groundless and unnecessary speculation by the usual suspects. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole, and I can't thank him enough for everything he does with this. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, the Royal Alberta Advantage, provides our intro and exit music, and they put on a great show if they ever get a chance to perform live again with this pandemic. Other musical pieces and sound effects are by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files at the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and all the fine publications found at newspapers.com. Don't forget to give a listen to the Council of Council of Dads podcast hosted by Andy Cole. Andy and Cole Osborne, who he's done a lot of projects with, have a discussion each week on the TV show Council of Dads, and it's often quite hilarious. You can find us on Twitter at, at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com, and our podcast is now available at YouTube by searching 50 Years Ago in Hockey. Thanks again to everyone who's tuning in. Uh, we enjoy bringing this to you each week. Content may get a little lighter as the summer goes on, but we're going to keep up. And uh, over the next few weeks, we'll be concentrating more, we hope, on the National Hockey League's Buffalo-Vancouver expansion draft. On that note, everyone, we'll see you next time. When the ice breaks.